Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking with Colin McGinn, the author of Prehension, The Hand in the Emergence of Humanity. Colin McGinn has taught philosophy at institutions of higher learning, including University College London, Rutgers University, and Oxford University. He's the author of The Character of Mind, Consciousness and Its Objects, The Meaning of Disgust, The Philosophy of Language, The Classics Explained, which are all published by the MIT Press, as well as other books. Colin McGinn, thanks so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today. It's my pleasure. So now you spend a fair amount of time in the introduction to this book, uh, helping the reader get a sense of the different disciplines you're going to use in making your argument. So to help booksellers everywhere who might be listening to this, what section of the bookstore would you put this in and why? Well, as you say, the book covers a number of diff- different disciplines, um, from biology, evolutionary theory, anthropology, to psychology, to philosophy, to linguistics. So it covers all these different areas, so it's not so clear which section of the bookshop it should go in. I think it should go in maybe three sections. The biology section, next to the Richard Dawkins books, would be good. Then it should go into the psychology section, and it should go in the philosophy section. So what was it about the hand that you wanted to talk about that you did not think was being addressed in earlier works? Well, it's a, it's a subject which has been addressed to some degree by people, going back to Darwin and Charles Bell, who wrote this classic book, uh, 19th century book. And it crops up uh, ever since then in various you know, contexts when people are discussing the evolution of man. But I didn't think that it had been sufficiently explored in an analytical way, particularly in a philosophical way. And I was particularly concerned with the hand in relation to language, And I wanted to explore the possibility that the hand might be a key pre-adaptation, a precursor for the development of language. And that aspect of it hadn't been uh, explored before, at least not very much. There's a lot more discussion about, say, tools, because obviously human beings from an early stage were using tools and the hands are the primary parts of the body that are involved in making tools and using tools. So that, I think, was, was generally appreciated. Then, too, I, I thought that the ro- role of the hand in social relationships was important to discuss uh, in cementing social bonds, forming communities, because another point that people have, have made is that human beings in their early prehistory had to cooperate with each other in bands of, of individuals who were hunting or living in small communities and so forth, and the hand then would play an important role in the, the nature of the social bonds that existed. So I thought there were a number of aspects that could be looked at, and it would be useful to put them all together in one volume. We've been talking about the hand, but the title of the book is Prehension, and subtitle the same hand in the emergence of humanity. What is prehension? Prehension, you know, comes from the Latin. It means grasping or gripping. Uh, so the hand certainly grips, um, but it's not li- prehension isn't limited to the hand because the mouth also grips. So one of the things I talk about in the book is to what extent the notion of prehension as a general phenomenon um, characterizes biological existence, whether living things are prehensive things. You know, some, some monkeys have prehensile tails. Nearly all animals have prehensile mouths or prehensive mouths. And you can, you can hold things and grip things in all sorts of different ways. So that's what prehension means when you're considering the body. But I also wanted to allude to the use of the word in more intellectual contexts. Um, philosophers use, have used the word prehension and prehend to talk about perception and thought 
So you pretend the things that you think about. And one point I make in the book is that many of the words we use for this more intellectual activity, things like comprehend, apprehend, those words, of course, embed the Latin word prehend, which simply means grip. So partly I was interested in the analogy between what the hand does when it grips and grasps things and what the mind does when it apprehends or comprehends things. And as we also say, of course, when the mind grasps something, a theory or an idea. So this this uh, use of this the concept of prehension runs through both the bodily and the mental side of, of our existence. So when I think about prehension, one of the first things that comes down in my mind is, is it that the ability to grasp, whether it's a tail or a hand or a mouth, is that the first, I guess, the first physical sense of which organism might be able to get a sense of agency, the sense that I can do something outside of myself? Yeah, I think that's a good way to think of it. There's agency in other parts of an animal's body, of course, uh, when an animal walks and so forth. But the agency involved in prehension is, is a particular category of agency, particularly intimate. So, you know, if you're a predator, for example, the, the jaws and the mouth are ex- extremely important to your survival. And sensitivity in the able, and ability to use them effectively are extremely important. Uh, so you might think that most animals have got, you know, several kinds of prehensive ability, but there's, there's a, a center of prehension that they have. And that will be vitally important to their existence and therefore very important to their psychological life because they, their psychological life will be centered around their main prehensive organ. It might be the mouth, it may be the hands, it could be something else, I suppose, in principle. Um, those are, but those are the most obvious things. So, yeah, that's, that's the way uh, prehension figures in, across the biological uh, realm. Now, early on in this book, you talk about two uh, very important evolutionary principles to keep in mind as the readers think about prehension. And one of the principles is the principle of ancestral preservation. The other one is the principle of incremental adaptation. Uh, so could you explain what these two principles have to do with the arguments you put out in the book? Yeah, the second one is the most important to the main argument. It's the idea that there are no saltations, is what the biologists say. It means that evolution always proceeds by gradual steps, not by sudden leaps forward. That's a saltation. Um, so it's important when you're trying to explain the evolution of a particular characteristic. It could be a mental one, it could be a physical one. It's important that your explanation doesn't postulate unexplained leaps in the dark, whereby suddenly one animal wakes up in the morning, you know, or is born, having had a genetic mutation, that just introduces the characteristic that you see in organisms around you. So in, my, in, in the case I was particularly interested in, which is language, you don't want to be postulating the idea that, you know, human beings and other animals didn't have any language and didn't communicate. And then one day there was a mutation, which biologists call it a macro mutation, which suddenly installed in one organism, in one animal, in one human, uh, the ability to speak with grammar, you know, and all the rest of it. It's a, it's a very complex ability. I mean, partly that would be pointless because the languages for communication, so if there's only one uh, individual having language, well, there's no, it won't confer any adaptive advantage. So that's not plausible. So what you need is a theory which explains the emergence of language as a stepwise, gradual, incremental process. So that's the idea of incremental adaptation. It's the, you know, the old hackneyed example is the giraffe's neck. 
the giraffe didn't suddenly get a long neck. They, obviously, the ancestors of giraffes got gradually longer necks because mutations that produce a slightly longer neck were favoured by natural selection until the necks get extremely long. So that's, the, that's why you need to make sure that you're not violating the principle of incremental adaptation when you give an explanation of something like language, or it could be anything else. I mean, every, every single adaptive organ needs to be explained in that way. And stressful preservation, that's just a general principle of evolution that tells you that in any existing organism, there'll be traces or remnants of earlier organisms, ancestors of that organism. In the case of humans, people often point out the appendix is something that it doesn't have any function anymore for us, but it's still there. People sometimes say hair on the human body doesn't have any function. We have it because we are, we are descended from apes and they had it. And the genes just keep that along for the ride. It doesn't do, do us any harm to have fine hairs on our body. It doesn't do us any particular good. So ancestral preservation involves this retention of prior characteristics from ancestors where those characteristics may be useful. In fact, generally they will be useful. They may be pointless or they may in principle be slightly disadvantageous but not terribly disadvantageous. So that's a, an, of particular interest to me later in the book is the question of whether there is ancestral preservation in our brains and so whether uh, our long-distant life in the trees, this is, you know, our, our distant ancestors lived in the trees and we, our ancestors came down from the trees, whether there still exists in our brains uh, an aspect of the brain adapted to life in the trees, and I argue at one point that many aspects of our present psychology reflect uh, a tree-mindedness that is best explained by ancestral preservation, which is to say that those tree-dwelling ancestors of ours had brains which still exist in our brains, but of course our, our brains have, have developed in many ways uh, uh, to produce additions to that. You know, I want to talk about those tree-dwelling ancestors and them coming down from the trees. It was the, That was the part of the book that made me think of that whole question of fitness landscapes that comes up in evolutionary theory, that, that it is the species or the animal which is best adapted to their particular landscape, which yeah. are going to pass on certain traits. Uh, could you explain why people who are listening to this take a look at either one of their hands and look at the distance between their thumb and their forefinger on why that's actually a pretty important part to thinking about hands and humanity? Yeah, it's very important. It's a point that's been made many times, but perhaps not even even now not sufficiently uh, absorbed. If you look at the hands of other primates, they look very similar to our hands. You know, there's five fingers, there's a thumb. You know, they're, they're rather similar. But if you look more carefully, say you look at a gibbon. A gibbon is a great uh, brachiate, as they're called. They swing in the trees. If you ever see film of them doing it, it's extremely impressive. And they, you know, to a casual glance, their hands look very like ours. And of course, our hands developed from the hands of primate ancestors. But there's one big difference. They have a very small thumb and not a very muscular thumb. Our thumb is much more, much longer and has this very muscular base. They don't have that because they swing in the trees by hooking their fingers around a branch. They don't grip it between the thumb and the fingers. So our thumb is long. And so it gives it a lot more strength. What that enables us to do, which other primates can't do, is oppose our thumb to the tips of our fingers. In fact, if you do an experiment, anybody can do an experiment, you can oppose, you can touch the tip of each of your fingers in turn with your thumb, and you're very adept at doing that. That it gives us what has been called the precision grip, as against the power grip. The power grip is just when you hold something like a hammer and you're just gripping it. The precision grip is when you're holding something like a pen, 
the near the grip is between the forefinger and the thumb, and that requires the thumb to be longer so it can make that opposition with the forefinger. And also it needs to have great strength, versatility, motor power, you know, to do many different things. So our hands are different anatomically from the hands of our, of our of other primates, even ones that exist today. Uh, and they also differ functionally because our hands are far more finely tuned and we can do far more with them than any other primate can do. We can play piano, you know, write, all sorts of things we can do. So our hands are exquisitely designed instruments for all sorts of ac- activities which typically involve holding or gripping things, hence uh, the importance of prehension. Correspondingly, in the brain of a human, as opposed to the brain of a primate, there's far more brain tissue dedicated to the human hand than there is in the case, say, of a gibbon or a monkey or a gorilla. Um, Because our hands and our brains have evolved together. I argue in the book they do so in the context of tool using and the way technology developed. So it was the ability, it was this co-evolution of the hand and the brain in our, in our human, human ancestors that led to the, what's unique to humans. So, so that's the, that's the difference between a human hand and, uh, uh, a typical primate hand. One developed, one did it in, developed from the other, but there was, there were radical changes in the hands, all done by incremental adaptation. There was no, no sudden leaps forward. But those differences, small though they may seem to the naked eye, are of enormous significance in terms of functionality and what it did to the human brain. So should we think of it as the, the, the fact that the human hand developed to be able to do more precision work, more fine work? Can we, that, then we're moving that back to say, well, that can possibly explain the vast difference in intelligence between humans and apes, simply because that part of the brain developed incrementally over time, and therefore because humans with their hands had a broader range of activities they could do, the intelligence developed accordingly. That would be right. So you, you look at human intelligence and compare it with monkey intelligence, and it's the human intelligence is a hand-brain intelligence, and our hands and our brains have got this enormous, great, enormously greater sophistication than the hands and brains of, the, of our nearest relatives. Um, that's important. But another aspect, uh, thing I argue in the book is it's not so much it's not just the hands themselves which in humans which spontaneously got better than the, the hands of, uh, of other primates, other apes. There was a specific event which seemed, when it happened, to be a total disaster for humans, but actually turned out to be the opposite. And that is the event where they were driven down from the trees. So they lived for millions of years, our ancestors, ape-like ancestors, up in the trees. They're driven down, probably by climate change, and they have to adapt to a niche which they're not adapted to. That is a, a terrestrial niche. They're on the ground again on the ground, and that changed their lifestyle completely. And for many animals, you'd go extinct if you, had, if you lost your, you know, your, your, the niche you were adapted to and forced into a, a new one. But humans did manage to adapt to that niche. Because of that, that event, that, that catastrophe, they were forced to use whatever they could to survive. And they, what happened was, as Darwin points out, they didn't use their hands anymore for climbing trees and swinging between branches. So the hands were freed. They, then these eight humanoid ancestors became, hominid ancestors, I should say, became bipedal and started walking around on two legs. Their hands were free and they started using tools as a desperate last measure, you know, a, a, a desperate, desperate last resort 
given that they'd lost their ancient habitat up in the trees, which was nice and safe from predators and just food up there and so forth. So they did that, and because of this accident, this unfortunate accident, they were forced to adapt in a new direction, and that put the selective pressure on them to develop that hand-brained combination that we just talked about. Other uh, primates that lived in the trees were not put under that kind of intense pressure. They were already pretty well adapted to their environment, and their hands were useful in, in the way that they were. It was because we were forced down from the trees, forced out of our natural environment, that we for were forced to adapt to that natural environment, which led unexpectedly to our developing the kind of intelligence that we have today. Uh, and finally, I want to talk about language. And the, uh, my question initially, and I'm now going to change it because of what you said, because I was remembering the part of the book where you're talking about tools and the fact that as language develops in humans, I mean, you do talk about the fact that once you start thinking about prehension and we talked a little bit about agency, it's pretty – making the step to, okay, a simple syntax of – you know, I'm the subject, that's an object, I'm going to do something to it. You know, that syntax begins to be developed. But could you talk a little bit about, as you mentioned, people can communicate with their hands. So do you have theories on why we began to move to more verbal communication as opposed to a hand-based communication? Yeah, there's a short chapter in the book about it. So the theory is originally human language was a sign language, so it was centered on the hands, like deaf language today. But, of course, that's not the language which most of us speak today. We still sp partially speak a hand language, because we use our hands in communication. But mostly, of course, our language is a vocal language centered on the larynx, right, producing sounds coming up from the lungs and so forth, which, lo which looks on the face of it very different from a sign language. It's actually not so different when you analyze it closely, because they both have to have syntax and grammar, semantics and so forth. But... This, the question then arises, well, why did we make the shift? Why, why, if we started off with a sign language, why didn't we stay with a sign language? Well, there were a number of different reasons why that would be if you look at the design features of two kinds of language. One thing about a sign language is it's very difficult to use at night because in the dark, you know, there's been, been no electricity back in prehistoric times. If you're in the dark and you're trying to communicate with your fellow man, you're going to have trouble doing it with the hands because they can't see. Things can get in the way. Um, people have to be looking at you, so it's not good. So you, humans will have had vocal ability, just as the primates that exist, they have vocal ability. Probably they were using that simultaneously with their sign language. So they started to use that vocal ability to a greater degree and substitute it in, say, in the dark for the visually based uh, sign language. So they'd move in that direction. One thing I, I mentioned is it's difficult to whisper in a sign language, people can see you. So if social relations got to the point where people wanted to whisper because they had secrets or they were plotting or gossiping or whatever, then it's much better to do that with the voice because you can moderate the voice just by moving to the person's ear, but the sign language is more difficult. So there could be a number of different... And another, another point I make in the book is uh, the hands... If you're using the hands to communicate, and, you're, and communication is going on all the time, as I'm assuming that it would, as it is with current with contemporary humans, if you're doing that, you can't use the hands simultaneously for manipulating tools, holding things, ripping things, and so forth. So you've always got this problem. Are you going to speak with your hands, or are you going to use your hands for other purposes? Well, if you shift the burden of language to the voice, then, of course, you free up the hands for their use in, 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 in operating tools. If you think of humans today, 
really we're, we're nearly always simultaneously using our hands and our voices. We're always speaking to somebody and using our hands one way or another. Hold, even if it's just holding a cup and taking a drink, or driving a car, or any, all sorts of things. We're using the hands simultaneously. So the, the theory then is that we, we develop the vocal language so as to enable our hands to carry on working simultaneously with all the other jobs that had been assigned to them during the course of human development. Colin McGint, the author of Prehension, The Hand and the Emergence of Humanity. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed your questions. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2015, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.